Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to our service this Sunday morning. It's great to see you. It's really lovely to see you all. Uh, I pray that you've had a good week, and I pray that you're doing well. So let's pray as we read from the scriptures and we open up our hearts to hear uh, the things that the Lord wants to share with us. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time that we have, this privilege that we can meet together, we can gather freely uh, to open your word and to worship you uh, and to pray uh, and to fellowship with one another. Father, I thank you for the many faces, many hearts that are here this morning. I pray that every single one of them um, is ready to receive what you want to share. I pray, Father, for an open heart. I pray, Lord God, for hearts that are ready. Um, I pray, Lord, there is humility in the receiving of your word. I pray, Lord God, there is uh, a commitment to want to follow through with your word. Otherwise, it is in vain. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing on us and what we do and what we say in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, New Testament today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, those of you familiar with the New Testament, we know the Apostle Paul uh, is, has written to this church on two occasions, the church in Corinth. Um, the first one was somewhat a, the first letter was somewhat a kind of, almost like a, let's fix things up kind of letter. You know, that's sort of what the first letter was kind of about. And, um, and then he writes a second, a second letter to them. And I want to, I'd like to read just, uh, actually, I'd like to read verses 1 to 10 from chapter 4 and share with you. And I, don't, I, I probably will get through most of it this morning. I, I may not, and that's okay. We can continue next week. Uh, but I kind of want to do a little, bit of a, a little bit of a study on this passage that I want to read with you this morning. It's sort of a little bit different to perhaps other mornings. I want to break it down into four parts, and I want to share with you some reflections on this that I hope that you're able to reflect on, think about, um, take, use, uh, make it part of your life, because there is a, there's, there's something quite rich in what Paul is trying to communicate to us in our own humanity and what he wants us to understand about who we are as, as people. We live in a culture today, we live in a world today that is so good at telling everyone how good they are, don't we? So good at it. Wherever you go and whatever you're listening to and wherever you're watching, you know, there's this message that keeps getting pumped out to this world, just reminding people, and don't forget, you're good in some shape or form. And while that's encouraging, we don't want people walking around miserable, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. We don't want that. At the same time, there is a subtle message in that that is quite risky. There's a subtle message, but I'll tell you why it's risky. Not only is it risky, because people then start to um, um, neglect, neglect their, their understanding of their need for God, but it's also risky because when people fail, they somewhat take it upon themselves as, like, as if to say, I'm hopeless because I failed. Rather than understanding, this is who you are. This is who you are. What are you so stressed about? This is who you are. And what God is revealing to you is just how much you need him. And so, so there is something that can be quite, um, can impact people by this message 
that is, is really go, is going around in different shapes and forms, just to reminding people, you're good, you're so good. Don't forget, you're good. Okay? And so this message can be quite, quite risky. And so while I'm today not standing up here telling you, not, I'm not wanting to tell you all that you're bad, I'm wanting to remind us all of somewhat of our humanity, of who we are, and why the richness of the gospel is so beautiful, why the gospel is so rich because of this. The other day I did a kind of a bit of a quirky activity with my students at the start of class. I said, okay, everyone, get up. Line up in a row, line up on the basis of how good you are. Everyone who's really, really good, go on this side. All the way down to everyone who's not good at all. And you could see the panic on their faces. Like, the, like what, where do I put myself? Where do I, what do I do, you know? Where do I put myself? And of course, everyone's kind of a bit too, they don't, they don't want to be arrogant. They don't want to put themselves on a really, really good Side. So they put some put themselves in the middle, some ran to the other side, but it wasn't good at all, which was interesting. But, but I did it deliberately, I did it deliberately in order to highlight something about this measure of goodness. What is goodness? What is goodness? And how do we even measure that? You know, who, who is it, whose right is it to even say how good you are? But God is faithful. God is faithful. And he reveals things about us and he reveals things that we need to know about ourselves in order to reveal the beauty of his word, the beauty of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the beauty of the message of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus walked the earth and he went around preaching and teaching and sharing and feeding and helping and healing, what people were beginning to see was their absolute desperate need for something more than what life was given them. They were seeing more and more their need for a saviour, their need and their dependency on Christ and Christ alone. And so they did this. They did this. And, and people uh, grabbed onto him, even literally sometimes, people grabbed onto him because that's who they were. And I pray that as the church, we, we never forget, we never forget that this need still exists today. So, if I ask you all to line up in, in, your, in goodness, in the level of goodness, where would you place yourself? Honestly, where would you place yourself this morning? Let's read. Let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through to 10. 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in, the crafty, in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but in the, by, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, 
who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, and yet we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Quite an interesting passage. Quite an interesting passage that Paul is trying to communicate around uh, something of, of who he is, something of who we are, something of what we need to be, and then something of how who God is and what God does and what God uh, becomes to those who understand him. And what we see, quite, I think, quite clearly in this passage is this really huge gap, this really huge gap between our own humanity and the salvation of God. Massive. So massive we know that the Bible teaches that none of us are ever able to somehow bridge that gap. We know that. That the idea of our condition, our condition, our human condition is so flawed and so faulty and so depraved by its very nature. And then the glory of the salvation of God is so beautiful and so pure and so rich and so great that this gap between it needed something quite wise, quite clever, quite creative, quite beautiful, quite compassionate, quite loving, quite merciful. And God found that. And that was found in the face of Jesus Christ. That only he and he alone was somehow able to bridge this, this condition of who we are and the salvation that he brings or the glory that he brings to us. And so we, because of this gap that is able to be bridged by Jesus, we then are confident of what the, the, the apostle John tells us in John chapter 3, where he says, when he talks about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so that everyone who believes in him doesn't perish, but has everlasting life. And so the God put it out there and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to find a way to make this, this condition and the salvation of man so achievable that I'll give something, I'll gift you with something that you are now, I'm asking you now to believe in. Not in anything else. Not in your level of your goodness. Not in the level of your smartness. Not in some other religion. Not in some other religious leader. But God says, I tell you the truth, as the creator of this world, I'm going to tell you the only way you're going to be able to bridge this gap, and that is through the gift of my son. And you choose him and you choose life. And you reject him and you reject life. You choose him and you take your condition and you restore it and you reject him and your condition continues to decay. Simple. And that is the message. That's the narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That God gave his son because he loved this world. Read it anywhere. Pick any book of the Bible and you'll see the love of God through the face of Jesus Christ. And so life becomes this wonderful kind of almost um, uh, interaction where God is actively seeking 
and we are learning to actively trust all the time. Can you see that in life? Just think about life for you. We are constantly in this kind of motion where God is seeking and God is reaching out and God is tapping on the hearts and God is calling and God is finding ways to bring into the path of people the goodness and the glory of God and then he's asking us to constantly trust him with it, constantly cling on to him, hold on to him, believe him, believe his word because though it's not happening now, it's going to happen rather than falling into a state of hopelessness. And so we are able to look at the world and say, I know what you're trying to tell me, but I'm not falling for that trick. I'm not falling for that lie. I'm going to come before God and I'm going to admit quite openly that no matter how good I perceive or think I am to be, and no matter how good people say I am, that is never going to be good enough in God until I come to a place where I completely and, and, and utterly am trusting only in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he gives me, that I can say quite confidently with the Apostle Paul that by the grace of God, I am what I am. So all the, all the religious deeds that I think I can do in life will never cut it for me. All the religious activities of life aren't going to cut it for me. They're not going to make any difference in the sight of God. They will fail miserably. In fact, the Bible says quite openly that all my righteous deeds are like dung in the face of God. Wow. You mean every good thing I do? Yeah, because in and of itself, it's nothing. It's like filth in the sight of God. Because how filthy to say, God, here are all my good things, and then neglect the blood of Christ who's the only one who's able to wash my sin away. The good news is then it's not hard. The word of faith is there. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth and you shall be saved. You don't need to go to some theology school to be saved. You don't need to um, balance out good and bad as somehow if I do enough good, I should, be, I should be fine. But I tell you the truth. When you come and you taste something of the mercy of God, your life will never be the same. It can't be. Take a man of filth and bring him and clean him up and say, look, your life doesn't have to be like this. It's a man who of appreciation, a man of, of hopefulness that says, I'm never going back to this. I'm never going to be a dog returning to my vomit, as the scripture says, or a pig returning to its mud, because I have tasted of the good news. I've tasted of the truth. And so Paul is communicating wonderfully to us something of how much this this, this, uh, bridge, if you like, that God has bound to create so that the humanity or the condition of who we are uh, is nothing easy for God, easy to restore and to fix. And so I want to break it down into four, four parts. And uh, there's, look, there's nothing fancy about these headings. Uh, one, is, one is the first part I want to look at is the importance of truth. The other one is the plan of the enemy. Uh, the third one is the focus on Christ. And the fourth is the sufficiency of Christ. And that's just how my brain did it. Um, so so um, I, I want just to reflect on these things. Let's look at firstly uh, the importance of truth. Um, look at verse 1 again. Verse 1. 
It says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. I want to stay on this for a moment. And I want you to think with me on this and what Paul is trying to say. He begins this kind of next dialogue and he talks about how God has given him something really special and he's given him a ministry. He says, because I have this ministry, this service, this act of service, whatever, whatever it looks like, and I don't want you to confuse yourself with the idea that, oh, but I don't have a ministry. I don't want you to confuse yourself with this language. I just want you to think about it quite simply. Whenever we put our heart and hand into something that God is actually asking us to do, whatever it might be, it might be our very commitment to raise our children. It might be the very commitment that God has given us in our workplace. It might be something that we do at church. It might be something we do outside of church. It doesn't really matter. We are, or it just might be the idea of being able to support someone in something they're going through, whatever it is, or even just to endure life. He says, whatever, he basically is saying, God has given us something. He says, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. And he talks about this ministry in the context of something bigger. He says, yeah, I've got this ministry, but I want to remind you of something. I have something bigger than what's called ministry. I have something called mercy. And this all came about because of the mercy of God. I'm here today and I exist today because of the mercy of God. And that's really important to remember. Because if our eyes focus on what we can and can't do in the ministry or in the work that we do, then we're going to find ourselves quite disheartened by the things that go wrong all the time. But when we remember that nothing exists other than to begin with the mercy of God, then we're always finding hope. He says, and because I have this mercy, I don't lose hope. I don't lose heart, actually, he says. How do you lose heart? How does someone lose heart? Or do you like, oh, where's my heart? Where's my heart? How do you lose heart? Well, you get to a place in life, and some of you may have experienced this before, you get to a place in life where you lose heart. It actually feels like, am I going to find it again? Am I going to be able to recover again from this? This is, I feel so deep in a situation. Am I going to be able to get out of it again? I've like lost heart. Where is it? that I can somehow feel encouraged to keep going again. And Paul reminds us that the way we do it isn't to focus more and more on the work we have to do or the ministry, but to focus more and more, more deeply and more carefully on the mercy that is given to us. Everything begins with mercy, brothers and sisters. Everything ends with mercy. In fact, let me ask you this question. When did it ever stop being mercy in the Christian walk? When does it ever stop being mercy? Anything that you do, whether it's life at home or life at work or life with your friends, when does it ever stop being mercy? Unless we take our eyes off the mercy of God and we put it on something else that we feel is our achievements, our goodness, how good I am. Oh, look how much is happening now. I'm actually getting better at this. And somehow we focus back on that message the world tells us. Look how good you are. And we start focusing on all the good things that we do so that when something goes wrong, we become miserable. 
rather than remembering God it always began with mercy and it will end with mercy and it's mercy today and what I need day by day is the mercy of God and thank you God that they are new every morning oh great is his faithfulness there's a story of a king who um, suffered a lot because of the rebellious people he was ruling over and they did him much harm and much frustration and one day they, they came and they just, they just said to him they just surrendered to him and said, look, they threw themselves at his feet and they just begged for mercy. What he decided to do was to pardon them all. So his friends came to him and said, oh, didn't you say that every rebel would die? His response to them was, yes, I did say that, but I don't see any rebels here. Beautiful, isn't it? I don't see any rebels here. I see a people who, yes, lived life like this, but are people who are begging and asking for mercy. Because it always begins with this. It always begins. And no wonder why God says he wants us to do justice, but to love mercy. God forbid that we become people who are all about just doing justly and to stop loving mercy. We understand the scriptures that says, for all have sinned therefore and fall short of the glory of God because every single one of us falls short. So I'll ask you a couple of questions to think about. Number one, are you walking with God at the moment because he needs you or because you need him? Just simple question. Honestly, it's answered in your own heart. Are you walking with God today because somewhat he think, you think he needs you? That without you somehow, oh, life's just going to be like ruins. The church won't be the same. My family won't be the same. Is it because you, he needs you or because you need him? Sure, God places you in positions and God places you in places Because he knows he can use you. You make yourself available. You are his hands and feet. You surrender to him, all those things. And you are where you ought to be because God understands that you are an incredible blessing to the people around you. But are you walking like you need him or he needs you? Because when I start walking life and I start realizing that I'm living life because I need him, then I understand mercy. My second question is this. Where would you be today without the mercy of God? Where would today be for you? Now, it's, it's, it's tempting to think, oh, I, in fact, let me put it a different way. If we are tempted to think, oh, we'd, we'd be where I am today. Then I would ask you to rethink that. How could anyone be where they are today without the mercy of God? Even if you choose not to believe. How can anyone be where they are today without the mercy of God? And so we, again, we confront face to face this idea that I'm somewhat good and good enough without God. That I can achieve and succeed without God. And they forget that even the goodness of God leads us to where we are today. That even him in his goodness and his mercy makes the sun to shine and the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So we humbly get off our high horse and we say, Lord, thank you for your mercy. 
Thank you for your mercy. And then in verse 2, he talks about that we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in, the, in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is a really beautiful verse, and I want us to think about this for a moment. What mercy then now does, mercy then allows us to do quite a few things. And because of this God's mercy, what we see always in the Christian life is God's grace always brings God's greatness. God's mercy always brings about the righteousness of God. Nothing ever ends in just the mercy of God. It doesn't happen like that. God doesn't begin a work and then says, okay, that's enough now. God's mercy always brings out the best of his son in people. And so this is what he's saying in verse 2. Because we have this mercy, we don't lose heart, but let me show you what we do find. You get that? This is what we do find. And so he says in verse 2, number 1, he says that mercy allows us to disown shameful practices. How does he put it? He says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. All the things that people do trying to get away that nobody can see them because they are ashamed by it. In fact, this world in some ways has become the opposite. Now they would gladly boast about the things that should be shameful. But let's go back to the traditional thought that, you know, shameful things people like to hide. And this idea that I don't want anybody to see what I'm doing in the home. I don't want anyone to see that I'm, what I'm doing in my room. I don't want anyone to see what I'm doing on my device. I don't want anyone to see what I'm doing when no one's watching. All these things, things of hidden shame. The Bible says mercy has allowed us to renounce them. You get that? Wow, that's beautiful. So all of a sudden... I've recognized before God that I can't do anything of my own. I've cried out for his mercy. His mercy has touched my heart. And he says, now you're free. You know, I know all the time you've tried to do it your way and you've tried to do it this way because you think you were good enough and you thought you were so good and you thought you tried this and you thought you tried that. But ask my mercy. And all my goodness came crumbling down until God said, now you are where you need to be. And all of a sudden he says, because I don't lose heart anymore, because now mercy has taught me how to disown it. You know when you disown something, when you you watch movies and you see people saying, I disown you. That's it. We're done. Me and you finished. Gone. Go. He goes, now I have disowned, I've renounced the hidden things of shame. I have disowned shameful practices. So, so much so that if you prod and prick and find and and pull out anything in us, what you will find is nothing hidden that is shameful that stays and lives and reigns in there. That's the gospel. How glorious. And you think, oh my goodness, what's he telling me to do? I told you from the start, our condition is so far from the gospel. It took someone who loved us and was creative and wise to find a bridge. I told you from the start, we're not good. I made it clear. I was honest with you. Until we come face to face with the glory of the message of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So mercy allows us to disown shameful practices. And so when we say, oh, you know, but what do you expect? I'm only doing what I'm what I'm like and I just, I'm human and 
Well, you're only talking about you, your humanity. You're not talking about the gospel. That's all you're doing. You're just, you're reinforcing what humanity is. Number two, mercy prevents us from walking cleverly to live selfishly. Look what he says here. He says, not walking in, the, in craftiness. Isn't that interesting? How does a Christian walk craftily? What are you even doing to walk craftily? What are you, what are you doing? Like you, it's, it becomes a craft. You, you learn it, listen carefully. Paul is not, Paul is not uh, hiding things from us. He's saying you've learned the art, Christian, and how to live skillfully and get away with it. You understand? I don't know, that's pretty confronting to me. You've learned how to make sure that how you conduct yourself and speak and live, nobody can really pinpoint that deep down there are things you're holding on to you don't want to let go of. So you've become skillful at it. It's become a craft. Do you understand? That's what the word means here. And so that's not being transparent. That's not being authentic. What's that going to do for you? Yeah, sure, it's, you can kick into survival mode, but it's, got nothing, it's got, never going to do anything in order, in, to, in order for you to become free and liberated and at peace with God, your Savior. You, you, will, you will walk like a, like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. This day I'm good, this day I'm bad, this day I'm good, this day I'm bad. And there's no freedom in that. And though you might be skillful and, and crafty, <laughs> you're not free. But mercy, listen, mercy prevents us from walking cleverly in order to live selfishly. What else does it do? Well, interesting, the next one. Mercy prevents us from tampering with the word of God. He says, um, uh, uh, not walking in craftiness, of course, and not handling the word of God deceitfully. How does a Christian even do that? How does a Christian even... Handle God's word deceitfully. Firstly, what an indictment on the Christian to handle the word of God deceitfully. That's huge. Imagine I said to you, do you handle God's word deceitfully? I don't think many Christians would admit to uh, handling the word of God deceitfully. But what he's essentially saying here is that we don't tamper with God's word. We don't cover up God's word. We don't say that, hey, even though I'm, uh, sorry, I'll put it another way. Uh, we don't say I'm living this way and the word of God is okay with it. Do you get it? We don't, we don't tamper with God's word. We don't take from the word of God what we like and don't read the parts we don't like. We don't hold on to the things that make us feel good and neglect the things that confront us. We don't tamper with it. We say, God, this is your word. This is what you ask of me. I want to be a faithful child of God. I want to live faithfully before you. And so I don't take the good and leave the bad. I take it all, if there is a bad. I take it all. Because that all is what makes me whole and makes me free. And says so he doesn't, because of God's mercy, I can come to God and say, God, I just read this part in the Bible. And, and I'm just telling you, God, I'm far from this. But I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask you for your mercy to make me what I just read. So I don't tamper with it. I say, God, your mercy has to enable me. I come believing and trusting. So God actively seeks and I actively trust him.
unless we choose to cover up the word of God and we start to quote all sorts of things to justify who we are and allow the word of God to cover rather than free. It's like a bird in a cage. I always think about a bird in a cage. That bird in the cage is flying around, flap, 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 bang, bang against the cage. And um, that bird is bound. I think, oh, poor bird, poor bird. So I put, go get a sheet and I cover the cage. I think, oh, it's good, I don't see it anymore. The bird's still bound. I don't see it, but it's still bound. It's not free to do what it has to do. Well, you know, in, in the sense of what we're talking about. And so this idea of covering things, unless we start to use scripture and um, we start to find ways to justify, it's like when people say, oh, the Apostle Paul, great man of God, godly man, and he said, what? I am the chief of sinners. See, I'm the chief of sinners. And they pull out First Timothy 1 and they think, look, there you go. Look, Paul is the chief of sinners. If he's the chief of sinners, well, I've got no chance. And they bring this justification of who they are. And they, they forget, Paul had, was completely not saying that. And in the context of what he was writing, <laughs> in the context of the New Testament. But they tamper. This is what it means to tamper with the word of God. Rather than come face to face and say, God, you said it, I'll do it. Not because I can do it, because of the mercy that lies within you. So we don't tamper, we don't, we don't hold the word of God deceitfully. Next, he says, by the manifestation of the truth, that's what mercy does. Mercy allows us to manifest truth, not just by what we say, but how we live because it becomes authentic. Interestingly, he talks about the manifestation of truth, which is kind of the opposite to the hidden things of shame. Do you get that? One's hiding, one's manifesting. And then he says at the end of verse 2, Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does that mean? Um, you know, it's one thing to live life truthfully. You can go around, you can say in your own heart, I live life truthfully. I, I live by the truth and I speak the truth, I live the truth. But it's a whole other thing to commend yourself to another man's conscience. It's like another level of accountability. To convince myself that I live the truth is one thing, but to have a brother or sister or a people say to me in their own conscience before God, yes, he does, is something else. And so even the people closest to you, The people closest to you that can say, yeah, I tell you, even in their darkest moments, they live with a good conscience before God. What you see at church is what she is at home. True? And so, so this idea of living truthfully, authentically, doesn't swap and change and move depending on the context which we live in but we commend ourselves to other pe another person's conscience and they see in good conscience before God that what we are is who we truly are all the time. 
Now remember, to give you a bit of a context, what Paul is doing here, Paul is um, responding to accusations that he's living kind of, um, uh, he's not living a good life. He's responding to that. There's accusations or allegations that somehow his life is a bit flawed. And while he's not troubled by that, we'll see in a moment, he wants to respond to it. And that's why he says, he says things like, well, you know what, I'm telling you the truth because of mercy. I'm commending, we're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, how did you see me live? How did you see me live when I was with you? Did you see anything different to what I'm writing? Am I one person in Corinth and the other person in Ephesus? Am I one person at church on Sunday? Am I a different person at Monday at work? You tell me, have you seen me live differently? Has there been a time that you think, whoa, what I'm seeing and what it is, they're two different. Has there been a time? So I appeal to your conscience, he's saying to them, because of the mercy of God. So I want you to look with me for, I'll just finish with this passage. I want you to look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and you'll see a context to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll finish with this. In chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he, he, he's reinforcing a similar point. The chapter before. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Yes, yeah, so Paul's saying, am, am I going to go around commending myself? Am I going to go around talking how good I am? Do I have to really do that? I don't want to do that. It's not what I am. It's not who I am. It's not what we should be doing. Or do we need, he says, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? In other words, do we need anyone to write letters to say, Paul's so good? He's so good. Do we need that really? Are we at that place where we need to write letters about each other's goodness? And then he he, he he, he focuses on something important. He goes, you are our letter. Written in our hearts known and read by all men. Look at the fruit that's in you. You're our letter. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Brothers and sisters, the only place God needs to write his word is in the tablet of your heart, not hearts of stone, because that's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. But as he writes it, tablets of flesh, that is the heart. Where God speaks as he ought to speak, God moves where he needs to move. God transforms where he needs to transform. Because we come before him and we say, God, I'm not even going to try and tell you how good I am. But I am going to tell you how much I need you. And whether we cry out to him, whether we call out to him, whether we pray to him, we come to a place in the, in the sight of God, of how much his word becomes for us our life and our truth.
So I don't know, this morning, brothers and sisters, as I close in prayer, I'm gonna, wondering um, how many of us this morning have lost heart. And you've become weary because you've lost heart. But I want you to think this morning, have you lost heart because you've lost sight of the mercy of God? And his mercy is being new every morning I hear this morning. They're here for us. They're here for you. They're here for me. Not to keep me where I am, but to change me, transform me. Not to cement me and say, say, there you go. I told you you can't do it. But to liberate, free. Not to cover, but to release. And I pray that you, we come this morning and, and, and just, and his first part, we realize firstly the importance of mercy, rather the importance of truth and truthful living. Let's pray together. Let's pray and ask, uh, reflect on that question, you know, are we living life trying to measure our goodness with the goodness of other people? Do we find comfort in knowing that if I was to put myself in a line of goodness, at least I'd be miles ahead of the person sitting next to me? Don't look at them. Or are we, are we really understanding that everyone, everyone is in desperate need of this mercy? As broken as we are, as fragile as we are, as vulnerable as we are, no, matter, no amount of goodness is going to make it before the Lord. But when mercy touches your heart, and that's, be, that's the beginning of an amazing transformation of our lives. It always started with mercy, brothers and sisters, and it'll end with mercy, and it's still mercy today. Let's continue to reflect on the word of God this morning in prayer and in worship. Let's not hide away from what the Lord is sharing with us. Let's not dig our heels in and say we are good enough. God is not embarrassed, or rather you should not be embarrassed before the Lord. For God sees all things anyway. Come and call out to him. Seek his mercy. Seek his grace. He will answer you. So we just uh, close in prayer this morning. Uh, we have an opportunity to come before the Lord as the as we've heard in his word and as we've sung this morning we want to come and call out to the Lord who rescues us what is it that continues to hold you captive what, it, what is it that continues to bind your 
way of thinking, way of living, to drag you down, to cause you to lose heart. We call out to the mercy of the Lord this morning and to trust in the love and the mercy and the compassion of our Lord and our Saviour. He told us if anyone comes to Him, He will in no wise, in no way will He cast them away. And you can call out to Him this morning and say, Lord Jesus, here I am. Wash me and cleanse me of those things that I'm doing, that are dragging me down, that are causing me to lose heart whether it be in my mind, whether it be in my practice, whether it be in my life, wash me by the blood of Jesus. And in your mercy, restore me. In your mercy, help me. In your mercy, perfect every area of my life. That what they see is Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, do not run from the Lord. Run to Him. Find your peace and your mercy in Him. Find your strength in Him. Father in heaven, where can we run to, Lord? Where can we go? We go into the furthest parts of this earth, Lord. You are there. And so we come before you this morning. We call out to you, we pray believing and trusting in who you are and how good you are. Give us strength, pour out your mercy, carry us, teach us, help us Lord, to become more and more like you. Let us not trust in how good we are, but let us trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed and the spirit that was given to complete a perfect work in us. Father, we come believing, we choose to believe, we choose to trust. And we thank you for this. Bless your people in the week ahead. Pour out your grace upon them. Let your face to shine upon them, Lord, and give them your peace. I pray in Jesus' name.